Hello, and welcome to the latest Moneymakers podcast with me, Jonathan Davis. I'm joined today by Peter Spiller, who we think enjoys the distinction of being the longest continuously serving fund manager in the London investment trust sector. He's been managing the Capital Gearing Trust, as it's known, since 1982, over which time the trust has generated a compound annualised total return of 15% per annum, which is more than 4% better than the UK stock market over the same time frame. Put that another way, £100 invested at the outset in this trust would be worth 17000 today. For many years, however, this trust was a closely guarded secret, known mainly to city connoisseurs, and difficult to invest in as the shares frequently traded at a substantial premium to net asset value. Since last year, however, the board of this trust has initiated a zero-discount policy with the aim of eliminating the premium and making the shares more accessible to the wider retail market. The trust owns three distinct asset classes, shares in investment trusts, which provides its equity exposure, cash and bonds for short-term liquidity, and index-linked securities for inflation protection and capital growth. It has an absolute return mandate meaning it's designed to provide a one-stop home for any individual's wealth and protect the capital of its shareholders through all stages of the market cycle. Peter Spiller is one of the largest shareholders in the trust and has most of his own personal capital invested in it. Always an encouraging feature. At the moment, however, as he explains to me in the podcast, he's rarely been so defensively invested as he is now. The first thing to understand is that the concept underlying our allocation is that the money in capital giving trust is all of someone's portfolio. So most investment trusts are the equity portion of a total portfolio. But a capital giving trust is designed to look after all of someone's money, for instance mine. Um, you have and a significant personal investment in the trust. Uh, I, uh, almost all uh, my, my capital is in our funds. And um, so it has an asset allocation which is driven by value and risk. And our assessment of risk is, is not the same as, um, as a standard assessment. So risk typically in the city is measured by recent volatility. Um, but, but our view of risk is that it's driven by value. So if equities are very cheap, then we do not regard them as being high risk, uh, regardless of the fact that they may be uh, bouncing around a bit. Um, whereas if they're expensive, then we do regard them as high risk, regardless of the fact that they may not be very volatile. So against so that's 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 what you're looking at the perspective you're looking at with, mm-hmm. and where would you be at the moment? What's what, how does it break down in your? Well, we are we are currently more defensive than we have ever been. Um, so the um, we're broadly one third, one third, one third. So one third in uh, risk assets, including investment trusts. One third in cash or extended cash that might be um, treasury bills or it might be uh, bonds out to two or three years um, and including uh, zero coupon preference shares uh, investment trust which is the market that sadly is coming to an end they're, they're all running off um, but it's been marvelous for us um, and the 
the final third is all in index-linked bonds, uh, both here and the United States. Um, and um, that's because we think that the resolution to the current excesses uh, will be inflation, um, that inflation will be significantly higher than the market is uh, expecting, um, and that the central banks will find it very difficult to control inflation, uh, if indeed they want to, uh, which we suspect they do not, because debt is now so great that it is clearly uh, constraining growth. And there are basically only two ways you can get rid of excessive debt. You can either default it away, which involves probably depression, uh, or you can inflate it away. And it's just not much question that modern democracies prefer the latter route. Um, so in the past, when power resided in the creditors, um, so speaking of the, of the um, early 19th century, for instance, um, if there was too much debt, then austerity was applied, which you might call physical repression. Um, uh, since the vote has been more widely available and the, credit, no, the debtors are in, uh, in charge, um, it's been financial repression that has um, been used to, to pay down debt. And that involves nominal GDP growing rapidly, of which sadly most would be inflation. Right. So the underlying problem is uh, we had a we had a very big buildup of debt leading up to the financial crisis in mm. two thousand and eight, um, but since then, far from actually experiencing austerity or deleveraging, the world has actually piled up yet more debt. Yes. Um, and uh, central banks have been engaged in a policy to keep interest rates down, partly to uh, to avoid having to pay the, <laughs> so, <laughs> pay the debt. Yeah. So I don't think, I wouldn't criticize central banks for what they did in, in 2008-2009, because we were looking at something very close to depression uh, as, a, as the counterfactual. Um, and um, they were extremely easy and they had uh, a very aggressive fiscal policy as well. And the combination did keep us out of recession. Um, and economies, uh, the Anglo-Saxon economies, have, have, are now uh, running at a higher level than they were before that. They didn't have much growth, but, but they are running at a higher level than, than before that. Um, but what they have done is address the problem of excessive debt by adding more debt. And that doesn't seem to be a terribly logical thing to do. Um, it was fine for the short term. But, but now um, they've really got a problem. Um, and not only that, but the impression that is uh, very powerful that monetary policy is more or less played out, that, that uh, we've applied it in, in huge amounts, um, and the, the um, results are getting less. So the, more, the stimulus they're putting in is getting less of a return. But the most notable feature of, of uh, QE has been that although inflation was forecast to, to resurge when it was initiated, it was clearly a very radical thing to do at the time, 
that hasn't happened. It didn't happen with QE2, it didn't happen with QE3, it didn't happen with Operation Twist. So the, um, the fear of inflation is, appears to have evaporated, um, very mistakenly in my view. Um, and um, so now we're, we're looking at um, extraordinary circumstances where, for instance, the chief economist of the Bank of England can make speeches about how um, central banks can achieve inflation, which is something I never expected to hear uh, in the 70s, I have to say. Because their job was to defeat inflation, not to try Indeed. and encourage stimulate it. Indeed. But um, the three the three which were uh, laid out a year ago, as was by, by um, Mr. Holden, were negative interest rates, adjusting targets, and, um, and helicopter money, potentially. Um, so negative interest rates have been tried, and I think failed. Interestingly enough, there has never been an academic paper discussing the impacts of, of negative interest rates at the time they were introduced. And it turns out that the uh, side effects are catastrophic for the banking system. In particular. Yeah. And the banking system is absolutely critical to growth. So, so I, I think uh, as soon as face will allow, that will be uh, withdrawn, that blind alley. Um, raising raising the uh, target is... is, is um, Raising the inflation target, right? Yes. Instead yes, yes. of 2%, it would be 4%. Yes. Yeah. yes. Um, and there was no doubt that there was a time when that would have been very effective, but it doesn't seem to have the power now to actually move its rotations in, a, in a, an important way. Um, although it will reassure people that there'll be no tightening anytime soon. Um, so we are left with helicopter money, and it does look as though, one way or another, that's what's going to happen. Um, possibly without it being announced. So um, in the UK, for instance, we might get a lot of infrastructure spending financed with very cheap long-term debt. And quite independently of that, the Bank of England is buying that very cheap long-term debt. So, um, so effectively what's happening is that the government is spending money that's being printed by the, yes. by the central banks, in yes. effect. Well, that's what looks like it's going to happen. Yeah. But, but, um, but the real point is each of these policies is more extreme than the previous one, but there's been no immediate um, problem. So if it doesn't work, if we don't get inflation with, with that, then they simply just increase the size of it, more infrastructure spending, um, and, and uh, associated with continuing QE. And uh, so what, what this really is saying is that the forces of deflation are very powerful here. Um, and continue to be, although some of them are, are getting much less on a worldwide basis. So, for instance, the, the move towards free trade is, is moving back, uh, clearly that cycle has moved back towards a protectionist tendency. Um, but the, um, so notwithstanding those deflationary forces, policy is clearly directed at creating inflation, and it will simply get more extreme it achieves it. The bad news is that when it does achieve it, the economies of the uh, Western world are so adapted to zero rates that it will be very, uh, very difficult to raise interest rates enough to control it. And um, there's been a number of papers uh, showing that, that uh, even rates of 2.5%, short rates of 2.5%, uh, would be very problematic mortgages and for, for the banking system. Um, whereas uh, 
if you recall when Volcker was asked to uh, control inflation, he brought in uh, real interest rates of 5%. So if you're dealing with, with uh, 4% inflation, that, that implies 9. 9% in um, interest I, rates. I, and if I, there's no possibility whatever of that happening. So, so, so we're in this paradoxical situation where we've been living through a period of uh, deflationary pressures and worries about deflation, uh, but you're saying that that is going to turn and it's going to turn probably quite sharply at some point. Yes. Simply because there's no other way for it yes. to go. Yes. yes. And in the UK, we've had a bit of help from, from um, devaluation. Post-Brexit? Post-Brexit. So, um, you know, we're expecting the rate of inflation to be, using the RPI, to be three, three and a half next year. Um, so that, that'll be a good start. Um, it'll be interesting to see what the policy reaction is to that. Right. And do you think, I mean, this obviously, um, you're making your dispositions now, so to speak, in anticipation of this uh, inflationary uh, uh, burst that's coming. Yes. Um, but you, do you have any clues as to timing? Um, we try very hard not to not to uh, forecast timing because um, um, certainly with, with in terms of equity markets, um, our standard mantra is the six months that are immediately to come are essentially random because uh, it's not very likely that we know much more than anybody else about, about the immediate uh, future. It's merely putting in the long term context that allows us to make judgments. And um, the real uh, issue is there are, there are always problems. For the last 50 years, uh, there are always problems on the horizon. Um, but equity markets have gone up over those periods. And the reason is that, that the valuations allowed them to. So there's a tremendous cushion of safety if you've got very cheap valuations and so even when problems do come along, they're not catastrophic. Um, there is no cushion of safety at the moment at all. So we view uh, all natural assets to be uh, at distorted prices. Um, so just one example that I'm, I'm fond of using is that um, you can buy the long in, end of the index link market in the UK, um, reinvest all the money have, without any costs, and you are guaranteed to lose over 60% of your money in real terms. Over the life of that one. Over the life of the one. Yeah. So that is really peculiar that that prevails. Um, and we think low interest rates are, are baked into the valuation of every financial asset. And for that reason, if the, the respective returns are so poor, we ask ourselves the question, how long do you want to Commit yourself to those, those um, rates of return, and the answer, of course, is as short a period as possible. Hence, our very short duration on, on uh, all our bonds and, uh, and a lot of cash. So, the implication of that, of course, is that um, this is quite an important point, I think. The implication of that is that uh, future returns over, over the medium term mm -hmm. uh, are going to be relatively poor um, right. in real terms. Yes, I mean we think uh, in most asset classes they were negative, and could indeed be negative. That's the point I'm yeah. leading on to. Yeah. yeah, so they could be negative, um, and people though say, well, actually, 
if we get inflation, you know, what about the equity market is... Does the equity market, in fact, do well in inflation, or does it just appear to do well in inflation? Uh, interestingly, well, the, 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 I mean, first of all, that, that's an important distinction. Um, but interestingly, uh, relatively low levels of inflation, it's fine. Though. So, so 2 or 3% is, is probably a benefit, um, and, they, and they, they quite enjoy that. Um, historically, anything over about 4 has been problematic for equity valuations. Um, and the... the um, the real issue for us is that even relatively low inflation will see a steepening of the yield curve. And it, from everything we read, one of the very few justifications for the current level of equity markets is that there is nothing else you can get any yield from. So, um, and uh, bond markets are priced as though they're going to be uh, low forever. Um, and so we think that would be quite a shock to the system if we actually do get uh, elevated levels of inflation and steepening yield curve, and we're pretty sure we'll see equities derated right. when that happens. Because at the moment you can at least sort of just you can you can uh, you can attempt to justify the valuations by saying that because yields are so low, the discount rate is so yeah. is so low, and the opportunity cost is low, and so on. Um, what about the other institutional issues that this scenario might create? I mean, we have. The banks you've talked about have been suffering because of, uh, mm. of a combination of QE and negative interest rates and, and low low yields. Um, what about the pension fund problem uh, that this country and other developed countries have, right. uh, have developed? Yes, I mean, it, well, it's, it's a very real issue. Um, I mean, I think it, it's part of a broader picture where the promises made, whether in the form of uh, promises like pension payments or just simply paying bonds in aggregate in the Western world cannot be met. Too so, expensive. So we just simply have more debt than we have ability to service it. Um, and um, the, the, uh, the, so I guess one way of approaching, approaching that is, is ask, to ask in what way will they be defaulted upon. Um, I think inflation is one of them particularly with respect to the bonds. Um, with respect to, to pension funds, um, obviously in the UK, most of the pension funds are index-linked, private pension funds are index-linked, so that's not an option that's open to them. Um, so the, uh, the only possible uh, solution is that companies which sponsor them are going to have to put a lot more money in. Uh, they've been very resistant to it, but... but um, Going to have to put a lot more money in, um, and the um, in the U.S. there's a really interesting situation where a lot of pension funds, particularly public pension funds, assume rates of return of seven to eight percent, which, in our judgment, as in the recent past, they will wholly fail to achieve. Um, it actually is. Um, it distorts asset prices too, in our, in our judgment, because whereas in the UK pension funds have been encouraged to buy index linked to match their liabilities, if your remit is to earn 7 to 8%, it's really very difficult to buy a, a tip on, on zero interest rate. <laughs> <laughs> Expect to get and, your target. And, exactly. and pretend you might hit your target. Yeah. So um, I think that's one of the reasons why, why index linked paper is much cheaper in America than just here. Much better value. You've got a significant holding in 
as you said, in uh, U.S. index-linked mm. securities. Um, and just summarize again the, the reasons why you've got them. Is it on value grounds or is it actually on, on security grounds, if you like? I mean, the safest haven to be in when, when the balloon goes up, if and when right. the balloons go up. I, I think actually they will make money when the balloon goes up. Right. Um, because notwithstanding the zero is, is roughly where we are in, in the uh, rate of return for um, tenure to um, real. Um, and the reason for that is if you look back at the 70s, the last burst of inflation, it was very clear that guilt yields were significantly below um, the rate of inflation that prevailed, and i.e. there was a big negative real interest rate. Uh, if you were in a tip, that means a significant capital gain. That's, that's so, good for tips and debts, yeah. Yeah, so um, what we're uh, hoping in it, and, and think it's likely to happen, is that at a time when everything else is suffering, these will actually be going up in real terms. And is the fact that they're in dollars also a factor? Well, it's been great. Yeah. Um, I have to say that uh, currency forecasts now are, are extremely difficult because they're so dependent on, on what the outcome of Brexit negotiations are yeah. with respect to sterling. Um, but I think probably over time, um, the dollar does a, a good place to be. Um, because, as mentioned earlier, we think inflation will be um, actually higher in both countries. Um, but historically, the Brits have been better at inflation. We've been better at generating we're, inflation. We're, we're, we're very good at it. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's fair to say that you um, uh, you are very concerned about where Europe is going, and maybe yes. you would prefer our country not to be part of the Eurozone, which it isn't, obviously, but when that possibly collapses, which I think you think is, is still a high probability? I, I think it's a very high probability. So, so again, timing is extremely uncertain. Um, but the structure of the Eurozone, uh, first of all, is very deflationary because it's anchored on Germany, which, which absolutely declines to, to, uh, uh, to run substantial fiscal deficit. Um, and um, it, it, it has been well explored that the whole structure is very flawed because they're just very different kinds of economies. And when um, one is hit, the euro does not respond. And uh, that, that means that, that the uh, historic way out of, out of uh, local problems, which has been devaluation, is no longer available. Um, and this is causing growth to be very moderate. Unemployment is still very high. Um, and um, the politics are getting more strained. And I suppose our, the summary of our view of the Eurozone is, is that it's just going to have a continuing series of political crises. So we don't know, we've got Italy coming up shortly and the, uh, and the constitutional referendum. Um, but who knows well, which way that's going to go, or the French elections, or, or elections in, in various parts of, of, of Europe. But a whole series of threats, um, any one of which could actually be extremely problematic for, for the Eurozone. Um, and um, it is certainly not helped by the fact that, that uh, sterling has devalued so much against, against the Eurozone, so countries like France, which, which um, France is politically at the core, but economically at the periphery. So um, the last thing they need is, is uh, one of their large markets 
to be devising against them. Um, but that is what's happened. Um, and um, so that'll be very interesting for the negotiations because uh, Hollande, bless him, um, has been very rude in saying so they've got to punish uh, the Brits and so forth. Uh, but his own economy is so fragile that I find it very difficult to believe that, that he would be able to put that into words or actually will want it when he starts to think about it. So I suppose putting a gloss on that, uh, forgive me if I'm putting it on incorrectly, uh, what you're saying I think is that um, um, the UK is probably better placed than uh, countries in the Eurozone um, uh, over the next few years, but that may be against a very bad background anyway, so it may be yes. a, a relative... <laughs> so we're, we're, avoiding, we're avoiding being part of a, of a disaster. Um, but much depends on, on, the, on the vigour with which we pursue this thing. So yeah. um, if we go uh, the, down the route um, of free trade, um, the, for instance, um, uh, we can take the tariffs off food, we have quite a good impact. Repealing the Corn, corn Laws in, in 1846 had a very positive impact, and, and I think it could have the same now. Um, and um, if if we do go on free trade routes, as I say, so say that we might uh, we might say that clearly we're not going to have a whole lot of trade agreements um, signed up before we leave. Um, but if we gave ourselves a two-year window in which we just said there's no tariffs. At the end of that, we move on to the trade agreements we negotiated. I think that would be very invigorating, and, and, and um, the UK economy could, could actually make some progress. Um, so it's not all bad news. Um, and um, the devaluation, I think, has been very helpful. Clearly, investment is going to be less. Yeah. Um, that there is uh, less confidence. But with the government making up some of that through infrastructure spending, which I'm expecting in the autumn statement, um, and the benefit of devaluation, um, I think we're going to be fine. I suppose one of the only risks there is that there'll be some political backsliding because uh, of, the, of the pressure of trying to deal with any kind of interim difficulties there are. And, and uh, Well, there's tremendous lobbying, isn't there? So, so yes. um, I discount all statements made by banks, for instance. Indeed. Self-interested <laughs> somewhat. Um, yeah. So the, 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 um, I find it quite difficult to believe that that the city would be hugely impacted, um, even in a hard Brexit, because um, the infrastructure in, in Paris and Frankfurt is simply not there. New York, I think, is a, bit, is a bigger threat to the city than, than, than either of them. Um, but um, meanwhile, we get a lot of statements which are, are intended to make the uh, politicians essentially replicate current membership without actually being a member. Um, which I think would be disastrous if, if, if applied. Yeah. So just kind of then coming back to your situation, you say you've got the lowest proportion in uh, in your investment trust segment of your mm -hmm. portfolio than you've roughly ever had, I think. Right. Right. right? Um, right. But are you, I mean, the great thing about markets, I suppose, is that um, things do correct in due course. Yes. So at some point in the future, there will be cheap assets again. Yes. Um, but does history provide any guide as to when that might be? I mean, if we've got to go through this whole process of generating inflation and so on. Yeah. Um, I mean, actually, I should just correct one statement you made. So we've been quite 
modestly rated weighted in exits for uh, some time. Some time, yeah. Um, what we've had has been um, a lot of duration in our bond portfolios. So we were very bullish about bonds. And it turned out that if you had a 30-year bond um, that had returns which are fully comparable to the equities, so that was what allowed Absolutely. us to keep up with equities markets, which in fact had risen by more than we expected. Um, but that's been fine because we've been able to um, exploit bond markets. Um, so um, that is that is our, our history. Um, and um, but you ask a very pertinent question, what gets us back into equities, I guess is your question, isn't it? Yes. And the answer is um, that we use um, CAPE and Tobin's Q um, in these uh, kind of uh, measures. Um, and we will have to also make some additional judgments because when the market fell in 2009, 2008, 2009, it never got cheap on those measures. Um, and what saved it was, was the um, extraordinary uh, activities of the central banks. Um, so we have to take account of that, learn from that lesson. Um, but I think actually this time um, it's going to be much tougher to, to rescue the situation. Not least because last time, although credit uh, was obviously uh, a problem in, in the West, the Chinese um, went on an absolute spree. They stepped and up to the plate as it were. They did, absolutely. And I think that that, that uh, had a tremendous beneficial effect on the rest of the world. Um, well, they're certainly not in a position to do that again. Um, so so uh, I think this time the, the valuations are likely to fall to levels where they're actually cheap on Cape and Tobin's Q. And there's also like to be extraordinary liquidity problems. So we saw uh, just after Brexit, various open-ended property funds having to gate. But um, we expect that to be just the first of many sectors. So smaller companies, I think, will have tremendous problems. Um, corporate bond, tremendous problems. Um, and um, the reason is that the regulation which had been brought in since 2008 to try and constrain the risk of banks getting under has meant that they are putting very little capital into market making for these uh, uh, these uh, sectors. And the sectors themselves have grown dramatically. In size, yeah. So the, uh, the combination has been that um, to make markets very illiquid. Even investment trusts now are, um, are fairly illiquid. Um, and in the past, it's always been very helpful to us um, to have panic. So, um, panic always creates opportunities. Yes. Um, so we are looking forward to some, some uh, great opportunities uh, going forward. Um, and um, when we can buy quality assets on, on big discounts. Um, but I think the situation will, will be really quite difficult for, uh, for markets as a whole. Um, and, um, excuse me. and um, 
the there is no obvious resolution to that. I can't see the banks being allowed to uh, to lower their capital requirements. Quite the opposite at the time. So, so um, I, th I think the uh, the current situation is, is is really very problematic. And do you think, in that context, I mean, is there a, is there a risk of we've already seen you know movements in political and the political uh, landscape, if you like. Mm. Um, do you think we're going to return to some of the things that we saw in an earlier period, like, um, I mean, capital controls or kind of siege economy type of thing? It, it, could it get that bad? Well, um, I'm not optimistic when it comes to that. <laughs> uh, no, I'm not, I wouldn't describe my general view as optimistic. Um, but the, the um, capital controls are essential for financial repression uh, where you don't have high inflation. So it seems to me in some sense high inflation and capital controls are alternatives. You don't have to have capital controls to, to, uh, to have high inflation. Um, the uh, capital controls were only basically removed under Mrs. Thatcher, so we spent a very long time after the war. Yes. With, with, um, with capital controls, and the um, we now have a very open economy. It seems to me extraordinarily difficult to actually impose them, because um, large numbers of, of, of um, assets outside the country are already held inside. So, unless you had real draconian stuff where the capital controls were imposed and forcible repurchase of some of those assets, which we did have in the war. But, but short of that, I don't think there's any, uh, any likelihood of it happening because it's practically so difficult. So as I say, I think we will get high inflation and that will, that, that will uh, achieve the financial repression. So if you have high inflation and very low interest rates, it's very bad news for, for creditors. Um, but I don't think you need to impose capital controls on them as well. So one of the final paradoxes is, I think, that what we've seen is that people have got used to or become accustomed to this talk about low interest rates for long periods of time, which mm. is one aspect of financial repression. Mm. And so they're all going out and borrowing money, which is, of course, one reason why the debt keeps going up and people are borrowing yes. on mortgages to buy second properties, third properties or whatever it is. Yes. Um, well, that's not necessarily stupid, is it? I mean, in, no, in, 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 in the <laughs> absolutely not. No, no, it doesn't. Um, unless the asset you're buying is is uh, overpriced, of course. Yes, which in certain places it will be. Yeah. So, so um, with housing, it's uh, that's quite a difficult uh, judgment to make. Um, but um, I think the the um, the one thing that can happen, which I wasn't really including in my com comments on on um, capital controls, is that you can have uh, so-called prudential measures, which limits the amount that banks can lend under, to certain, uh, un, under various circumstances to, to various sectors or so, so right. well, it's, it's that 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 kind of capital control is certainly possible although the history has not been kind to uh, to those attempts uh, you may recall the corset indeed uh, which is um, i think the polite word for it is a failure <laughs> <laughs> so that was peter spiller explaining his somewhat downbeat assessment of the outlook for investors and how he's positioning his fund 
for what lies ahead. To hear some other views and to stay in touch with all our latest podcasts, I'd remind you that you can sign up to be notified about each podcast as it goes live on our website, www.money-makers.co. You can also hear these podcasts on iTunes and other podcast channels. Thank you for listening.